Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. Again, as I said in the last couple episodes, we are um, we are asking for you creative types to submit a design for the conference t-shirt for the Theology in the Raw's Exiles and ba- Theology in the Raw's Exiles in Babylon conference next spring here in Boise, 2022. So we are going to have merch at the conference, and we are going to have a special conference t-shirt that sort of represents the theme, the vibe, the the, the slogans, the logos of the conference. And so if you're a creative person who likes to develop designs that you want to go on a t-shirt, then you can submit these designs to chris at theologynara.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at theologynara.com. Um, submit your designs before November 26th, and then we will go through two selection processes. Uh, the Theology and Raw team will select the top three, and then we'll submit those top three to my Patreon supporters who will select the number one design that they like. And if you get selected to the top three, if your design makes it to the top three, you get free access to the conference. If it gets selected number one, you get free access to the conference and to the after party on Friday night and to my house for a private dinner with me and a few selected guests. So if that interests you at all, um, then please submit your design. All the info is in the show notes below. And if you want to find out more about the Theology in the Raw conference next spring here in Boise, then you can go to pressandsprinkle.com. And I'm sure all that info is also in the show notes. Okay. Constantine Campbell, my word, where do I start with this guy? This guy is a brilliant New Testament scholar and a professional jazz musician. Those are probably two professional expertises that have never been joined together before, but they have been they have come together in Dr. Constantine Campbell. Um, his doctorate was in ancient Greek language and linguistics. He was a professor of New Testament studies for 14 years. He taught at Moore College in Sydney and at Ted's uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago. He's written tons of books, including Paul and Union with Christ, which was the 2014 Christianity Day Book of the Year Award in Biblical Studies. He's written other many other books, uh, The Perfect Storm, Reading the New Testament as Christian Scripture, Paul and the Hope of Glory, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's so many here I can't even like. It just would take a whole podcast to go through his whole CV. Campbell is also a highly recognized, uh, highly regarded jazz saxophonist, 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 and is a visiting instructor at the Australian National University's School of Music. Goodness. He's the presenter of two documentary series of the apostles, Paul and Peter. Um, he's walked on the moon. He's visited Pluto back when it was a planet. And I think he has a few stars named after after him in the neighboring galaxies. I don't know. That's I'm assuming that all that's true. Anyway, I'm so excited to talk to Constantine because the dude's just brilliant and just invigorating and challenging. And yeah, you're gonna love this. Well, I, most people will love this podcast. Some might be a little troubled by it because he's not afraid to spice things up. So please welcome to the show the one and only Doctor Constantine. All right. Hey, friends. I'm here with uh, Dr. Constantine Campbell, whom I have known from a distance for a long time. Um, Con, I, you know, I, I've, you know, we've been at conferences together. I don't think we've ever actually had, I don't think, an, a, a conversation together, but I've always yeah. seen you from a distance. Like, oh my gosh, there's like Con Campbell, like probably the sexiest <laughs> New Testament scholar alive. <laughs> 
<laughs> and this dude like is a professional musician. You are, I don't know, maybe fluent in ancient Greek. Like you kind of do it all. So I, I'm, I'm a little intimidated, quite honestly, to <laughs> to have you on the show. Uh, but we did meet once. I remember meeting you one time, uh, but I don't think we had much time to chat. Yeah, you. We were with Joel Willits, and I think Kutcher oh, introduced right. us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that's the that's the only time. And I, I've been aware of you too, of course, and following some of the stuff you've been doing. And yeah, we've got so many mutual friends. It's crazy oh, that so we many don't know and each a mutual other. editor. So uh, Katya, who is one of the main kind of academic theological editors at Zondervan, we both you and I have worked together. And uh, yeah, that's you know I, I do vaguely I do remember that. And then Joel yeah. Willits. Yeah, Joel Wiltz is another hot shot, man. That guy is something else. Um, yeah. 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 Well, man, it's it's such an honor to have you on the podcast. Can, can you just give us a – maybe just a broad snapshot of your your life story as it pertains to biblical mm-hmm. scholarship? And I know when I think of your name, I primarily think of like your um, – your knowledge of just the the Greek language and the New Testament Greek and verbal aspect theory, which we might get into. And, um, but man, you've done so many other things too, but yeah, j- just give us maybe a running start of who you are and, uh, we'll go from there. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, man. Um, I began as a jazz musician. So my great passion, uh, was to become a professional jazz saxophonist or saxophonist, as you tend to say in the U S <laughs> uh, and, um, but when I was at music school, um, just nearby where I live now at the Australian National University, I became a Christian uh, through a university church that was meeting on campus there. And pretty much as soon as I finished, I sort of wanted to pursue um, serving God in a full-time capacity and teaching the Bible and telling people about Jesus, stuff like that. So after a an apprenticeship, sort of a ministry apprenticeship for a couple of years. I, I went to study in Sydney at Moore College. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really there that I discovered the world of academic theology. You know, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd studied jazz performance. So uh, I'd worked hard at that. You know, I practiced a lot, but I didn't really, wasn't really a bookie kind of degree, you know. Yeah. So I didn't really do research. I didn't really write serious essays, things like that. But when I got to more college, this academic world just opened up Mm. and I fell in love with study. I fell in love with the languages, Greek and Hebrew. Um, And even though I I went in there with the intention of becoming a pastor or or a preacher, that sort of thing, along the way, I started to think, you know, maybe there's an academic side to this for me. Mm. And after my studies there, I moved back to Canberra, where I'm living now, and served in a church, the church where I had become a, a Christian, and uh, did a PhD on the side on ancient Greek, on the on the verbal aspect stuff. So um, I got into being interested in verbal aspect while I was a student at Moore College. And at that time, it was one of those issues that, you know, our lecturers, our professors were like, look, this is what's happening. This is the conversation. There's no real resolution. There are lots of questions, problems, things like that. And I was just super intrigued by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I ended up doing a PhD on that. But my my interest in Greek, even though I really love Greek and Hebrew, uh, and I learned Aramaic and a few other things as well, but um, the real love is for exegesis, like mm. reading the texts as originally written. Mm. As you know, that there's such a joy in 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 seeing the actual language mm-hmm. 
that the biblical authors use and then being able to access the discussions about what they're writing rather than relying on translations. And our translations are good. You know, they're amazing, really. But uh, there's nothing like reading yeah. Paul's letters in the original Greek. And so my fascination with Greek was stand it's a standalone love, but but it's really for the purpose of reading the texts. Hmm. Uh, and so I did my PhD in Greek verbal aspect and I ended up teaching at more college for a number of years and wrote some books on that. Uh, but I didn't want to get pigeonholed as the language guy, you know, because that's what happens when you do a PhD on pretty much anything. You become yeah. that guy, yeah. you know. And so my goal with the language was, as I said, always for for reading the text for exegesis. So I started writing um, on the text and especially Paul and uh, some commentaries and some extended studies and things like that. And so in recent years, I've been much more in the Paul scholarship kind of world um, yeah. than Greek. Yeah. Can, can you explain, um, but, uh, you, you've yeah. mentioned a verbal aspect a few times. Um, mm -hmm. I think obviously, I mean, 95% of my audience will know the New Testament was written in Greek. Um, they might even know there was a certain kind of Greek, Corne Greek. Um, what is, can you explain to a lay audience what verbal aspect theory is? Because um, I, yeah. I, I imagine 90% of the people listening don't know what that means. Well, I mean, in, in short, it's a different way of understanding the way that Greek verbs do what they do. And in the study of ancient Greek, uh, it's been heavily influenced by the study of Latin. Mm -hmm. And especially for the last 500 years, after the Renaissance period, all languages were studied through the lens of Latin, which was kind of the, the linga franca of, of academics at mm -hmm. the time. Uh, and so lots of unhelpful comparisons were made between Greek and Latin and including the way we understand the way that verbs work. So especially thinking of verbs primarily as tenses, you know, indicating past, present, future. And we're, we're so used to thinking of verbs that way as English speakers because our verbs do in part signal time. Um, but they do more than that as well. And the problem right from the start, like I remember in the first couple of weeks of learning Greek, uh, reading Mark's gospel and finding an aorist in verse 11 of chapter one that doesn't refer to the past. You know, Jesus is baptized and a voice from heaven says, this is my son with whom I was hmm. well pleased. If oh, you take wow. it as a past, it's I was well pleased. And you're like, what? What does God mean by saying he was pleased with Jesus? Is he not pleased with anyone? And none of the translations, none of the past tense, even though it's an aorist and it's supposed to refer to the past according to the rules. Huh. And then uh, the more you get into it, the more you see that the, the, those old rules actually don't fit the evidence, not well enough. Um, there are about 15% of aorist indicatives that don't refer to the past. There's about 30% of present indicatives that don't refer to the present. And there's about 60% of perfects that okay. don't communicate a past action with present consequences. Wow. So, you know, those those rules just don't really work. And that's sparked scholars um, for 150 years, really, to reevaluate how Greek verbs are actually communicating. And the consensus today and the, the research that I've been involved with is this thing called verbal aspect, which is where we're saying, look, these these verbs, uh, their, their main purpose is not to communicate time, but to communicate aspect. And an aspect is a way of 
using a verb to portray how you're viewing an action. Okay, so um, an aspect is operative in English, it's operative in all languages, um, whether we realize it or not. But we, we're basically portraying an action as though it's unfolding before our eyes, hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or looking at it from a distance. You know, so like I say, oh yeah, yesterday I went to the shops and I bought newspaper and I bought a bottle of milk. This is all sort of looking at it from the outside. It's like this happened, then that happened, then that happened. Mm-hmm. And if I say, well, yesterday uh, I decided to go to the shop. So here I am, I, I walk into the store and I think to myself, oh, I'm going to buy myself a newspaper. So I buy a newspaper and then I buy a bottle of milk and I hmm. walk out of the store. So that, that's a very different way of presenting the same events, mm-hmm. but as though you're seeing it unfold rather than in a summary kind of fashion. How would you unpack Mark 111 then, according to verbal aspect theory? Like how would, how would you expand on that translation? Yeah. Well, I think uh, because he uses an aorist, the aorist is the classic verb in Greek to portray a, a summary. So you're, you're not um, trying to mm. specify like, when or where or for how long you're just saying let's take the whole and talk about the whole so when he's saying i am well pleased he's saying this is my general statement of the of the whole situation i am pleased with this with this sum uh and of course i take it you know for translation purposes as a present as all the translations do because it's not referring to a temporal reality but it's a, it's a summative, it's a summary of the situation. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, totally, absolutely does. Um, so if, <laughs> I'm going to try to get really salty here for a second. All right, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, and this isn't meant to be demeaning or derogatory at all, but like if Christians hear a pastor who's had a year or two of Greek, went to seminary, yeah, kind of, you know, in a sermon, talk about a verse and the real meaning because of the Greek is, you know, past tense or past with present, you know, implications, the perfect tense or whatever. Like, how do you, I, well, let me just keep it more personal. Like when, when you hear a pastor talk about New Testament Greek, are you typically like, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you could use a little more work here. I mean, <laughs> it, it le- I mean, it's one thing to have a knowledge of verbal aspect theory and say, I still yeah. line up on the more chronological, mm-hmm. temporal side of that debate. Um, but to just simply mm-hmm. say, well, this Greek verb is in the past tense, therefore, or this Greek verb is in the perfect yeah. tense, therefore, and come up with an interpretation. Yeah. Like, is that, does that bother you? Or do you have a certain level of forgiveness it's a, for it's that? It's a little bit cringe. <laughs> it's a little bit cringeworthy for me. Yeah, I have to admit. Um, the reality is, uh, as I've often said to my students, um, the point of learning this this stuff is not so that you can mention it in a sermon. Yeah, that's that's, that's not the point. The point is that you can read the text mm. well, and as you read the text, your reading of the text will impact your sermon. Of course, it will. It will inform what you do say. But I, I think personally, I think there are very few reasons to mention Greek at all huh. when you're preaching. There, there might be when, when maybe a particular interpretation of the way you're reading the text really hangs on a particular reading of the Greek text and maybe your audience, say, like a university audience or something like that, they're up for that kind of technical detail. Mm-hmm. But 
you know, most don't need to know, mm-hmm. you know, what the Greek says. And the reality is most of our interpretation involves many other factors besides just a Greek verb, you know. So I don't want to overplay the importance right. of this stuff and it's going to change the way you read the Bible entirely. But it will, it, it, it is one cog in the wheel of reading the text well. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Yeah. I mean, even in my own experience, like when I preach, it's so tempting, right? To kind of pull the, well, here's what the, in the original language, or like, it's just so tempting to like yeah. come off as sounding like elitist yeah. or smarter because you are, I mean, and like when I preach, I, with any preacher, you're trying to convince somebody, a, a group of people of the truth, right? You, you, yeah. You feel like you have a good grasp on the truth and you want to help your audience to embrace that. And it's so tempting. And that, that's not a bad motivation, I don't think. But it's so tempting to sort of like use some kind of knowledge of New Testament Greek to, you know, to, to do that. It's so like yeah. I find myself all the time when I'm preparing sermons like, ah, but am I just falling into kind of this elitism or just like, do I need to say that? Yeah. Do I need to reference something that doesn't need to be referenced and i'm really just doing to give the air of i know more than you you know like it's so tempting yeah but yeah i mean i i mean i honestly feel like even having like a couple years of new testament greek can almost be more dangerous than having no greek at all like i'll I'll never forget i'm sorry i I want to hear you talk more than i talk but i remember going to aberdeen university where i was doing a, a, a phd in new testament and there was a mm. Greek reading group in uh, – they're reading through – we're reading through Philo. <laughs> yeah. I, I had had probably three years of Greek by this point. So I feel like ah, I kind of got Greek. And they opened up Philo, which as you know is written in more classical yeah. Greek, not this super easy kind of like just basic Koine Greek that, that the New Testament's written in. I couldn't read a, a line of Philo. I couldn't yeah, read a line. I was yeah. like, I don't even know what this is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I remember at that moment, that night, I went home super humiliated. And mm. I said, I will never, ever say again that I know Greek. I can fumble yeah. through New Testament Greek with a lexicon. I could, yeah, I can do that okay. But when people ask me, do you know Greek? I, I will immediately say, nope, I don't know Greek. <laughs> because I don't know right. like real classical Greek. Like it's just, it's so yeah. different. It, it's such a it's such a complicated and beautiful language, you know? And, um, I don't know, like, do you, so I guess, let me ask you a practical question. Like when it comes to people who want to be a pastor, like I want to lead God's people, should they learn Greek? What kind of Greek mm. should they learn? What kind of challenge encouragement would you give? I mean, cause I've, yeah, I've talked to pastors yeah. that say, do I really need to know Greek? And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, you kind of do. But then I'm also like, but I don't want you to take a year of Greek because that's almost more dangerous than not knowing any Greek at all. Yeah. A do you have any thoughts Greek on this? Yeah. Thing. yeah, a little bit of Greek is a dangerous thing for sure. Um, but I do, I've written about this. There's an essay in a volume on theological education that came out a couple of years ago where I, I argue that pastors who want to take their preaching seriously really do need to learn okay. Greek. Um, but, you know, it's uh, I want to know that my pastor and preachers I listen to have read and studied the Greek text rather than just looked at translations mm-hmm. and commentaries. Mm-hmm. The problem when you just look at com- uh, translations, not that our translations are wrong or anything like that, 
But once you start to understand the way translations work, which only really happens if you do study the, the Greek, um, is that every translation involves a certain degree of interpretation. And that means that there are other interpretations, other ways of translating that have been left out by the translation. Now, that's when we go to the commentary. And a really good commentary will say, well, the NIV says this, but the CSB says that, and that's probably better for these reasons to do with the Greek and various other whatever. So the pastor can figure that out. But but what what's happening there is that the pastor is really um, bowing to the authority mm-hmm. of these commentators rather than what I would prefer to see, uh, have a conversation with a commentator. Mm. And so, uh, we, you know, when I was teaching at Moore College and, and also at Trinity, um, uh, I would try to encourage students to get to the point with the Greek where they could say, I'm going to have a, a conversation about the Greek text mm. with the commentator rather than just accept yeah, everything that the commentator tells yeah. me. And so then you, you're, you're sort of more like equals. Uh, not that, I mean, obviously commentators are vastly experienced and knowledgeable and so on. But it's still, a, you can actually critique what they're saying or you, you can evaluate what they're saying because you're looking at the same text mm-hmm. that they're looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's very important because if you take your job seriously as a teacher of the text, um, then, you know, you, you're kind of holding in your hand these these complex issues, but you, you and you want to distill them for your congregation, for for your hearers. But you want to do that with a, a kind of humble confidence that you've done your homework, and you're not falling into some trap because you 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 don't actually you haven't really looked into um, the text as originally written. So I, I think it's. Um, I think it's important. I don't want to overplay its importance. You know, like you're not a pastor if you don't know right. Greek, this sort of thing. Yeah. But um, I think it's part of the basic competency, mm-hmm. along with studying the history of the New Testament text mm-hmm. and along with studying, you know, the themes of the New Testament and, and, and those sorts of things. It's part of that competency to be an authoritative handler and teacher of yeah. God's word. That's that's my view. Yeah. No, yeah, I know. Totally. Oh, yeah. In, you know, I've often told people like, kind of going back to what I said earlier about just having a year of Greek or two years of Greek, like even that, as long as you acknowledge, I don't actually know Greek. I can read it. I can interpret it, um, whatever. But like even a, even a couple years of Greek does give you the ability to interact with some of the best commenta- commentaries, like the ICC yeah. commentary series or the um, – um, what's the um, – NIGTC. Yeah, yeah, and NIGTC, yeah, which is really based just on the Greek text or even the Zondervan yeah. exegetical commentary or others that like they're right. primarily working from the Greek text. So if you have no knowledge of Greek, you can't even really participate in, in the conversation right. they're having. And yet these are typically some of the best commentaries in the Bible because some of the English-based commentaries, not to diminish them at all, but they are – Sometimes they don't get into some of the nitty gritty aspects of, yeah. of the Greek New Testament. So, um, like for me, like my Hebrew, I used to know Hebrew pretty well, and it's it's I've lost so much Hebrew. But even now, I can I can look at a critical commentary on the Old Testament, and if they're talking mm. about a Hebrew word, I I can follow the conversation. That's so, right. Sometimes I can yeah. recognize a word, and I can even go to a lexicon and kind of interact with what they're talking yeah. about, and and that alone just opens up a whole world of like. 
yeah. you know, conversation with the New Testament. Um, yeah, it's it's like I say, I, I think it's kind of basic competency, mm-hmm. and and I don't want to say that in a way that discourages people who might find it hard to learn languages. But right. if you were going to study ancient history, you know, where I did my PhD at Macquarie University in Sydney, if you're going to do an undergraduate, like a Bachelor of Ancient History, you would learn Greek and Latin hmm. uh, because you're going to read the primary text. So this is not PhD level. It's oh, just wow. bachelor undergrad level. You know, it's basically this is what we do in ancient history. And so part of, not all, but part of what we do as we teach the Bible is we're engaging with ancient history because we're engaging with a text that's 2,000 years old. Yeah. You can't um, teach that text without um, recognizing that it's an ancient text and therefore, you know, engage the tools of ancient history. So even just on ancient history standards alone, you know, we should be really studying Greek for the New Testament. I mean, if 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 students of ancient history would learn the original languages and they don't believe that those texts are inspired and if Christians believe this is yeah. inspired by God and are going to... Uh, I, I really don't want this to be offensive, you know, but maybe just challenging. Like, yeah. if you dare yeah. to stand in a pulpit and say, this is what... God has said in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and you have no knowledge of that, or or even no desire to learn that. And again, I'm leaving aside people in certain circumstances where they just haven't had the financial or whatever opportunity to learn these languages. Yeah. And I totally want to understand that. And I am not reducing pastoral ministry, the knowledge of Greek language, P- plenty of sure. abusive people are fluent in Greek, you know, so I, you know, yeah. Um, but yeah, to say that I have had the opportunity to learn these languages, but I just haven't felt the importance of it. And I'm still going to teach God's word from the original text. Like, man, I would just challenge people to at least ex- revisit that. <laughs> yeah. that yeah, I totally you know? agree. And, and I think too, part of it is probably people's philosophy of preaching. Yeah. Like for me, I gather from you too. Um, we want to preach, you know, in a way that, is really expounding the text of the Bible, whereas not everyone wants to preach that way. That's true. Yeah. Um, you know, and and so I, I mean, personally, I think they should, <laughs> yeah. but uh, but you know what I mean, like yeah. Um, so I guess there's a philosophy of preaching as well that's assumed in that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So so you're, I mean, you're okay. So so <laughs> your your knowledge of the ancient Greek language is one of many talents you have um i don't know if we're gonna have time to get into your musical talents um but uh, you're also very aware of and knowledgeable of kind of cultural christianity or or different cultural trends in um the evangelical church and you have a forthcoming book coming out right that that is yeah addressing (laughs) (laughs) certain certain this is very different what, what's, from, tell us about your this, new book coming out, and I'm sure that'll launch into a, a, probably several different possible strands of conversation. Well, it's it's quite provocatively titled. At this stage, I don't know if my title is going to get through with the publisher. We'll see, but uh, it hasn't been finalized. But my working title is Jesus v. the Evangelicals, um, a biblical critique of a wayward movement. And this right. is... Um, it's a quite a departure from other books that I've done. Uh, it's not an academic book for starters. It's it's for a kind of general audience. Okay. Um, but I'm coming at it as a biblical scholar, um, 
and having lived in the States and, and being, you know, quite aware, I think, of what's been happening there over several decades um, and um, feeling in myself, but also in many of my uh, students and, and friends and colleagues that something is really going wrong um, with evangelicalism and um, especially, and not to throw stones, but especially in America. Yeah. And of course, I, I know many wonderful um, brothers and sisters in Christ across the spectrum of the evangelical church. And it, it, it's a it's a really broad tent. It's a huge thing. Um, and they're, they're wonderful. And I wouldn't want to cause undue offense. But many of them too, I think would resonate with the kinds of concerns that I'm trying to raise in the book. Mm. For one, and maybe this has become pretty obvious recently, but the politicization Mm -hmm. of evangelicalism, uh, the assumption that if you're an evangelical, you will vote in a particular way, um, that you'll be concerned about specific issues and political issues and not other Mm. issues, uh, and so on and so forth. So there's a, a chapter in the book called God and Country, um, but I also address other things like uh, judgmentalism, and uh, uh, there's a chapter on tribalism. Um, there's a chapter on megachurches. Mm. Uh, this, you know, th- there's a chapter on marriage and divorce, or divorce and remarriage, I should say. Um, and so, I'm um, I'm really trying to get at what are what are evangelicals in general saying about these issues and what does the Bible say about these issues and where are they getting misaligned? Um, and yeah. yeah. And particularly focusing on the teaching of Jesus. So, okay. Yeah. Um, what, what differences do you see between like evangelicalism in Australia versus America? What are some big differences? I mean, how yeah. you, cause you've, you're not just lobbing a bomb from Australia. Like you've, yeah, you've lived in America for a number of years. You've participated in, as an evangelical leader training evangelical pastors at a major seminary in America. So this isn't just like some, you've very much been immersed in both contexts. So yeah, what are some key differences would you see? Um, I think uh, Australian evangelicalism is certainly not perfect and we've got our own problems, you know, and we've got a more seriously our own blind spots. Mm -hmm. Um, And so some of our problems we're not even aware of. By definition, um, but it's it's the heritage comes more from a British evangelicalism, especially influenced by figures like John Stott. Yeah. Um, and so there is a um, uh, a kind of rigorous commitment to the exposition of the text um, and allowing the text to shape um, theological convictions and so on. But I'd say the biggest difference in Australia is evangelicalism is not a political movement. Um, now, now, sure, uh, evangelicals may have things to say about political issues and, and whatnot, but it's much more from the sense of a kind of prophetic role, calling government to account or calling out things in society that need to be addressed or that sort of thing, rather than alignment with a particular political partisan situation and that that's a very big thing in the u.s obviously um with 81 percent of white evangelicals voting for donald trump for example something that and i don't want to offend any of your viewers or listeners but frankly uh, in australia we find that really hard to understand Hmm. um 
And I think you, I think I understand it um, because I, I understand what issues, political issues, American evangelicals are most passionate about, namely, say, abortion and things like that. Um, and so there's an alignment with the party that is kind of promising to try to do something about those issues. But, uh, you know, as I raise in the book, there are a whole range of other social issues that the other side pays more attention to that actually are real issues according to the Bible and according to the the teaching of Jesus. Um, And so there's a selective reading of the Bible that's going on Mm -hmm. in both contexts, America and Australia, we both do this. Um, And this is more of a problem for evangelicalism in general, that while we say our highest authority is the Bible, it's actually a way of reading the Bible that is our highest authority, i.e. an evangelical hermeneutic or an evangelical interpretive grid. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we actually let the Bible be the highest authority, then that grid gets a bit dismantled because Mm -hmm. some things don't fit anymore. Um, And like it's clear if you read the Old Testament, um, God's very concerned about justice for the poor and for the oppressed and for the weak and the vulnerable. and yet those issues are regarded by many American evangelicals as if you're concerned about that, then you're a liberal, yeah, you know, yeah. theologically and politically, mm-hmm. because evangelicals care about other issues. And I'm like, wait, look, hmm. that's not what the Bible says. Right. In, in Australia, do you, do you not have like the Christian church aligning with a particular political party? Like it's no, you have no, the church not, and then you have politics and it, those are really kind of separate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be able to tell you what most people at my church, who most people at my church vote for, because hmm. um, it, it's there's not an assumption of political allegiance um, and the churches are not, they're just not politically aligned. Um, so there are issues that tend to bring Christians together um, and, you know, uh, abortion is one, um, but so are asylum seekers and things like that. Yeah. Um, and there are sort of what I would call um, American-esque movements starting to happen okay. in Australia, yeah. Yeah. Uh, where there's the Australian Christian lobby, which is which is being more political and and trying to gather Christians for a political agenda. Uh, but I, but I actually I'm critical of that too. I mm. think that's risky and and a bit dangerous. Yeah. Well, it, it depends. It depends how it works out, you know. Um, but I think, like I said, and the, uh, the chief role that the church can be involved politically and socially is is in a prophetic way to witness to the truth of God in Christ and the love of God in Christ, um, rather than be aligned to a particular party or so. Partisan. So you would you would. I'm trying to formulate my question. You would. Um, the church would have no problem protesting against something that they see as unjust or a problem with the way things are going, but they wouldn't align yeah. with some kind of secular party line in order to achieve justice. Is, would that be the big ju- difference? Whereas in America, Correct. a lot of Christians, and this happens on both sides um, of the aisle, you know, they might align with the Republican Party to you know, address abortion, or they might align with the Democratic Party to address issues of maybe race or, you know, it, it, justice for the immigrant or whatever, rather than simply embodying 
justice as the church toward something that is yeah. an evil in society. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And I think one, one of the interesting points I read about and then included in my book was that if you compare the civil rights movement of the 60s mm-hmm. with the religious right movement of the 80s up until now, yeah. big difference is um, the civil rights movement never tried to achieve what they were doing by political power, but instead it was by persuasion to persuade the public so mm-hmm. that the politicians eventually had to fall into line with that. Um, whereas the religious right has tended to let's get political power, then we can influence society through our powerful position. Um, but I think the results are very different because the 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 gains of the civil rights movement are still with us and have permanently affected American society. Uh, whereas the religious right uh, have, if anything, kind of undermined its own moral credibility by so ruthlessly pursuing power. That's, that's a huge, I, I've not thought about that distinction, that, but that's, that's, that's huge. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because I mean, the, the motivation, you, you can almost, you can appreciate the motivation, let's say, again, from those on the left yeah. or the right, saying here's an yeah. issue of injustice that I want to address. But if you use the means of political power to do that, that's just not going to, that's not, first of all, it's not, mm-hmm. it doesn't reflect just the way of Jesus who kind of addressed yeah. that approach on many occasions. Um, and, and you end up just kind of, I don't know, like creating more problems than you're trying to solve rather than you're saying like the civil rights yeah. movement and that that is true based on the knowledge that I have. Um, that they they were primarily motivating. Well, well, they did address, I mean, unjust laws and and other things, but it wasn't it, through like let's let's ram this politician yeah. into office and do whatever so he can start making. You know, like that's just. It, it was more or let's right. persuade the 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 people to see the unjust laws that need to be reversed. Um, that's right. Man, yeah, that's that's. I need to think about that. That's good, good stuff. Um, okay, so so you um, you taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for how many years? Uh-huh. Uh, six years. Six years. Yeah. Okay. What was your experience like there? I mean, that's a that's one oh, of the uh, most mainstream. I would say pretty balanced evangelical divinity schools in America. Like one of the most high power. People don't know what that is. I mean. Ted's is, uh, I mean, one of the top five, I would say, go-to seminaries in America. Did you, did you have a good experience there? Oh, yeah. I, I loved it. Yeah, it was, it was a real thrill. Um, amazing colleagues mm-hmm. and amazing students. Um, and in many ways, the, the sort of problems in evangelicalism were things that we would talk about in class. It's not necessarily things that I experienced by being at Trinity. Okay. Um, if anything, yeah. Trinity attracted people who sort of thought a bit like I did, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. within a kind of spectrum, you know what I mean? But so, um, but yeah, just wonderful people. And I love the combination there of like um, really high level, serious academic work yeah. combined with, um, a real commitment to the gospel and the church. And for me, Trinity represents um, the fact that those things are not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. You don't have to choose between, well, I'm going to go somewhere with really serious academics or somewhere that really cares about the church. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Um, You can bring them together if you have the right faculty and the right leadership. Um, That is possible. Yeah. Yeah. My my understanding of Trinity is that it's, yeah, it's, it's a high value on academics for the sake of the church. Like it's, it's Correct. not instead of the church, you know, but it's like, no, because, because you want to be a church leader, therefore let's take yeah. the academic journey extremely seriously. Like it's one of the more academically rigorous seminaries in the U S I think, I mean, Fuller would be up there. I think Gordon Conwell, yeah. you know, might be up there and, and others, but um, yeah, you guys, I mean, people that come out of Trinity with an MDiv, they're they're further ahead than most people with an MDiv in America. I'll just say, like I, yeah, you guys, you guys are crazy. Yeah, well, they have to study Greek and Hebrew for starters. <laughs> so, and that's not true for all MDivs anymore. And Trinity seems seem to balance some of these debates, like even things like women in leadership or the charismatic gifts or whatever. Yep. Like, there's differences of opinion on these things or end times perspectives on, on yeah. the end times. Um, yeah, there, there's a there's a statement of faith. But it's pretty broad, and within within that, where the where the statement of faith does not specify particular issues, like complementarian and egalitarian, um, there's freedom there. And um, I think I, I found that extremely enriching, and I, I think students do as well. Even though it can be kind of confusing, if you have one professor who thinks this way and another who thinks that way, but really that's the real world, and right. it gives them the opportunity to speak to Professor A and Professor B in person uh, rather than, you know, if you're at a kind of school where everyone thinks the same way, then what tends to happen is um, people who have alternate points of view are often treated in a kind of maybe as a straw man sort of approach. Uh, But also they're out there or they're the enemy or it just, it's sort of, it sort of further entrenches the tribalism that's already inherent in evangelicalism. So I really value that freedom to within certain parameters, like, you know, the scriptures are God's word Mm -hmm. and, you know, the Trinity and salvation by grace through faith and the, you know, really essentials of Orthodox faith. Um, but within those parameters, there's a lot of freedom and, and, um, I, I think that's really important. So I, I really love my time at Trinity. I was sad to leave. Yeah. Do you, Do you think that kind of healthy diversity can exist inside of a local church? Like it's one thing in a, in an academic institution to have one teacher's complementarian, one's egalitarian, one's amillennial, one's premillennial, whatever. In in, yeah. in a church, local church leadership, do you think that that would be healthy or more confusing, or it um, depends on the church? I think it really depends on the church and the leadership. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, here's the thing, like in the West, um, we have a major challenge, uh, against secularism, yeah. uh, the new atheism, mm-hmm. you know, and just the moral credibility of the church. We do not need to waste energy and time fighting ourselves mm-hmm. over issues that really, we might think are super important, but are really, in the grand scheme of things, not that right. huge, you know. Um, and I don't want to downplay because I know people are really passionate about this or that. But the reality is, when you're talking about someone's thinking about, do I want to be an atheist or a Christian? Right. Then you don't want to be squabbling about premillennialism or amillennialism. 
or complementarianism and egalitarianism. You want to say, you know, we believe that Jesus is the son of God raised from the dead, son of David, you know, and that by faith in him, you are spiritually raised from the dead and restored into a relationship with your heavenly father and that he is the Lord of the cosmos. You know, that that's the sort of big, big picture stuff that like we really need to be focusing on. Um, so I, I would love to see churches be able to cope with that sort of diversity and actually see that as kind of healthy mm-hmm. um, uh, within parameters of like, but these, these fundamentals of orthodoxy are what we all agree on. Yeah. I, I yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I'm like, I personally am wired more towards like, let's, let's have diversity yeah. of thought. I'm not threatened by that. You know, I will hold things loosely that I think I'm not sure on and think strongly, but I'm fine yeah. being in fellowship with somebody who disagrees on, on non-essential yeah. things. Yeah. But I, and maybe, maybe it is more of an American evangelical thing, but it just seems like most Christians just can't do that. I don't know. Like it's, yeah. there's just this tribalistic spirit from politics yeah. all the way down to different denominations and everything that just seems so pervasive. I, I remember when I, um, I did my PhD work in Scotland and, you know, Scotland's a very post-Christian country. And so if, if, you know, there's many churches, most of them were not like evangelical. They're kind of leftover Church of Scotland, like nominal churches. So when there was an evangelical church, it didn't really matter the, the denomination, your eschatological views, whatever. If you believed in the gospel and the authority of scripture, like that was enough to unite yeah. you. And I remember in Aberdeen, there was yeah. like a small handful of churches that were evangelical. Why, you know, array of opinions on secondary matters, but there was such rich unity, like the free Methodists yeah. and the Presbyterians and the Baptists, they, they, if they're evangelical, they got along so well. They they almost didn't even care or talk about these secondary things while, while they valued them. But it was like, I remember that was so yeah. refreshing. And then I come back to America, and it's like, man, we'll we'll find stuff to just to you know divide. Over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it I, I like in Australia? Is it? Because... I feel like Australia is kind of like in between America and the UK in, to some extent. Would you resonate with that? Or it's. Well, I don't know. I think we're we're pretty post-Christian here as well. Yeah, it's pretty secular. Yeah. Um, so it's probably it's quite similar to the UK. Okay. Um, but except for certain pockets, uh, like especially in Sydney, where there's a really very robust evangelical church within the denominations. Right. Um, like the Anglican Church, for example. But um, but we we do have the same sort of tribalism, okay. um, and especially in the those bigger areas, like in Sydney, where um, you know, where I, where I taught for a number of years and studied, and, and I have a great love and affection for the Anglican Church there, but it, it's so big that, uh, and I think this is the same problem in, a, in America, it's so big that you can afford to just exclude anyone who doesn't hmm. think the, the exact same way. But when you're in the minority, um, like in, in Scotland or whatever, then yeah. you, you want to, you don't want these little things to get in the way of your fellowship, of, of your union together. And I think that's the way it ought to be. And the sad thing is, if we're having these squabbles, or if we're if we're really doubling down in these tribes, um, then um, we're missing the opportunity to work together in a culture that is slipping further and further into secularism. Mm-hmm. And so I think we and, and Scotland, the UK, we're further ahead than the US in secularism. Mm-hmm. But I think it's coming in the US. Yeah. 
Yeah. And and you really need to be thinking, look, if I have this Christian brother over here and we don't agree on these issues, but we're brothers in Christ, um, we can work together um, to reach out to these people because, you know, in 30 years' time, um, you're not going to have the same size advantage that you have now, I think. Right. You know, and, yeah. and who knows what God will do in the sovereignty of God, you know, and all that. But the way it looks, the way the trends are going. So stop squabbling over this stuff and, yeah. and stop being so tribal. But, you know, reach out to your neighbor mm-hmm. and um, join in fellowship with those that we have so much in common. We have so much in common yeah. in Christ. Uh, yeah. yeah. So that's. Yeah. 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 I, I spent some time in Melbourne and Brisbane and yeah. Sydney and other uh-huh. I've never been to your city though. Can- uh, Canberra, is that right? Or- Canberra. Canberra. Yeah. Uh-huh. What, what's what's? Hey, it's the capital. I know, I know. <laughs> but it's not like a major tourist destination. I feel I feel like people either go to yeah uh-huh. Sydney or Cairns or yeah. uh, Melbourne or whatever. Um, what's the church like in, yeah. in Canberra? Is it uh, pretty small or? It's 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 um. I, I'd say it's it's for Australia. It's not small um but it's not huge but it is pretty diverse okay and so um it it doesn't have there there isn't the same sort of tribalism because you can't afford it okay in canberra you know so that diversity exists and there's fellowship across there's a much more ecumenical vibe here um yeah so i think it's it's pretty exciting what's happening in canberra though um in the church there's been a lot of growth in the last 20 years um, and Canberra used to be a sort of place where evangelicals were not welcome at all, really, especially in the Anglican Church, which is what I'm part of, ordained in the Anglican Church. But that's changed, and um, evangelicals have certainly not taken over, but they've um, become a vibrant part of the Anglican scene here. And um, but that that's partly because the evangelicals here are not the hard nosed kind as well. Like they're, they're okay. sort of like want to get along with everybody, okay. and 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 have that fellowship across the different types of yeah. Anglicanism and different denominations. My my perspective yeah. on the Anglicans in Sydney in particular are that it's a very conservative branch of Anglicanism. Is that right? Or yeah, yeah. Is that what it's known uh, for? It is. Okay. It is. Yeah, and you know, in in many ways, uh, I'm a product of it. You know, okay. um, the sure. the church where I was. Converted, you know, was heavily influenced by the Sydney Anglican Diocese, even though it was in Canberra. Um, and I trained at Moore College, which is the Sydney Anglican right. Seminary, and I taught there and preached in hundreds of churches throughout the diocese. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm very fond of many people there and, and whatnot. But I do think, and I used to say this when I was there, um, the greatest enemy is within because there's this there's this infighting, there's a politicization not with secular politics, but in the church itself. Yeah. Um, and um, a kind of unhealthy tribalism. And that's that's probably the greatest threat, really, yeah. to yeah. Um, what's happening there. Hmm. But, yeah. Are, are you teaching or are you teaching at a school in Canberra? Or? No, I'm I'm uh, actually teaching music at the Australian National Music uh, Australian National University. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm, I'm teaching in the jazz department. Yeah. What? Um, okay. Yeah. So give um, give us. I mean, this is like a almost like a schizophrenic podcast, but like, so you had this whole other 
side of you that's like a professional musician. Can you give us a snapshot of that? And I'm, I'm going to be at a lot. I don't even know what to ask. I'm not a musician at all. My, my oldest daughter is yeah. a wonderful musician. But yeah, oh, g- give us that whole trajectory of your story. Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I originally studied jazz performance. That was my great love. And um, when I became a Christian, I, I wanted to go into full-time ministry. But I thought that I was... I would have to give up jazz to do that um, because I thought I've been practicing six hours a day, you know, and, and I'm not going to be able to do that anymore. So I'm probably not going to be able to play anymore. But as, as one Christian friend said to me, it's like, I gave up jazz for God and then God gave it right back. (laughs) And I I discovered I could still play. I was still being booked for gigs uh, and I was improving and getting better. So, the jazz thing has been percolating all all along uh, my ministry and study and academic work the whole time. And actually being in Chicago when I was teaching at Trinity was fantastic mm. for my jazz because the, the jazz there is, you know, second only to New York. Right. And uh, I played in a lot of jazz clubs and met a lot of great players and it really improved my playing. Um, so I had a lot of street cred when I came back to Canberra, um, <laughs> having been in Chicago for six years. And, um, but a lot of my old friends were here and they were teaching, uh, where we had studied 25 years ago. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, one thing led to another and I was invited to do some teaching there and I'm spending most of my time writing, researching and writing, um, with the, the New Testament stuff projects that I'm doing, but the teaching side is jazz right now. So your full time job, full time job is teaching jazz at a university. Yeah. I'm not teaching full time. I'm just teaching part time. Okay. But yeah, yeah. And yeah. that that pays the it bills, is, and then it, you're still it, writing and researching in this New Testament side. That that how do you make that yeah. shift? That's like, man. <laughs> I just look. To be honest, uh, I feel like I don't really have a choice. I'm I kind of have these passions yeah. that compel me, and uh, I always have to play jazz you know uh we've been in lockdown here for a couple of months i got my first gig back next week and i can't wait you know i'm just it's a maybe it's a left brain right thing brain thing i don't know but like there's an emotional fun artistic creative thing to playing jazz with other people that you know i it's like a drug for me i guess a healthy drug (laughs) does your does your music background help shape or inform or or contribute to your theological academic work yeah it, it absolutely has from the beginning you know like even when i was um studying the languages for the first time uh i took a lot of the uh things that i'd learned from practicing saxophone and applied that to the languages like for starters the daily discipline was very important uh, but also you know i would treat um, paradigms, you know, re- writing out the Greek verb paradigms or whatever, like they were scales. And what my teacher at university used to say to me was, your scales have to, you have to know them so well, they become your friends. Oh. Um, and so when I'm p- playing saxophone, I could practice them so much that they become my, my friends. Like I, I know them inside and out. And that's, that's how I approach the languages. You know, the vocabulary, the paradigms, they have to become my friends. I'm going to know them so well. Um, and, um, so that was a real kind of practical way that that jazz influenced my study, but but also theologically and, and exegetically, um, I just um, 
uh, I just love to to improvise and create and yeah, try to yeah. think outside the box. And so in in interpreting the text or whatever, I'm trying to think what what's the interpretation no one's thinking of here? Yeah. You know, why try to break out of the box here? Like, you know, um, what aren't I seeing? You know, and there's this, I don't know, this creative impulse in me that's been fostered by playing jazz that that I really affects everything I do. Uh, yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, the reason why I ask is I feel like the, like there's you know, some of the biblical interpreters that are super like good at the languages and everything and, and just super like left brain, very cognitive, very rational. Sometimes they're not the best interpreters, you know, like there's just, there's, yeah. there's, yeah. there's more to the text than just kind of adding up the numbers and spitting out an interpretation or whatever, you know, like there, there yeah. is a lot exactly. of creativity just just even in in understanding the genres and getting just in tune with the rhythm of poetry and apocalyptic literature and so on like there's just it's a left and right yeah. brain thing right so i i always wonder That's like people, right. like interpreters that have the rash the the cognitive abilities to know the languages and everything but also have this kind of creative side to them oftentimes i find them yeah. the most exciting interpreters yeah. i know <laughs> Yeah, me, me too. And I used to say to my students, you know, you don't do exegesis by the numbers. Right. It's not. It's not math. It's right. It's there, there is a technical side. Sure. But there's a creative side, and as is like that because you you have a really highly technical side, um, but there's so much fluidity and improvisation in and around those parameters. So uh, I call it freedom in the groove. Yeah. there's a groove right but there's freedom within it and and that's that's the sweet spot you know yeah for jazz and for theology in my view no that's great yeah. and, I, and i say that as somebody i, I don't think i have well I don't, I, I don't think i'm typically a very creative kind of person in that sense but i've learned to kind of grow into that and appreciate it when it comes to language is where i feel like that's where i don't know like i really resonate with people who are extremely creative with the English language and know how to use words and like that kind of, I don't know, mm. like I've kind of fallen into a deep appreciation of that, but I'm, I'm typically, I'm typically very much a, a math kind of like rational right. thinker. And I've, but I've yeah. seen how that's a danger too. Like, it's just like, there's stuff in the, there's stuff going on in the text that I feel like I'm, I'm more blind to when, yeah. when I just get into that kind of two plus yeah. two equals four mode. But, um, I'm going to let you go in a second, but can you give for our lay audience who yeah. doesn't know the languages and may not have opportunity to know the languages and maybe they feel a little shamed in our conversation and I do apologize uh, for, for that. But um, can you give our, our audience maybe some one, two, three tips on how to read and interpret the Bible, how to become good readers of the Bible? What are some things they can do in their kind of private, you know, study times of the Bible to read the Bible well? Great question. I think um, I'm a fan of uh, big picture and micro mm -hmm. together. Okay. So I love to, you, you need a picture of the whole. So read a book at a whole, you know, whole sitting. But I love the micro, read one verse. Okay. And really think about the bits in that verse. What does that verse mean? And then go back and big again because okay. the the micro and the macro inform each other hmm. um and uh the macro gives you context so that you're less likely to misinterpret the micro but the micro 
is often where the gold is, like mm. these little nuggets of insight that, you know, maybe you've been a Christian for 30 years, but you never thought of it that way before. And it's not like you were wrong. You just didn't see this extra element, this hidden diamond in the rough. And so uh, I think go micro, go macro and read and reread. Like, because because of that recursive process going from the micro to the macro, each rereading gives you a different reading. Um, and so just keep reading and rereading. I, yeah, I, I the, the rereading piece, I remember I took a class on Ephesians in seminary, and before the class even started, the requirement was you need to read through Ephesians 30 times. And I remember, oh, wow. I, I, and that was before getting into the text, and then the whole semester was wow. walking through yeah. verse by verse in the original languages. And um, I just remember reading it, like, after 15 times, I'm kind of like, come on, I think I yeah. got this. But I remember <laughs> after about 20 times, I'm starting to see stuff I didn't see before. 25 yeah. times like i'm starting to just say nuances and emphasis and just there's just yeah yeah that that well, re- man, reading I, piece I'm, yeah so good i'm i'm writing a commentary on ephesians right you now you are sweet and 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 this is a book that i've taught for over a decade and i felt like i knew it pretty well but right now i'm going wow i never saw that before oh, i never man. saw that and i've been teaching the text for a decade you know um so huh. I, I totally resonate with that and for me that's really exciting and, and I'd love for preachers to, to get hold of that because it can be really exciting for the person in your, in your congregation who's feels like they've heard it all before, right. you know, and they've been a Christian a long time. But if you can bring something to them or show them something in the text they've never seen before, mm-hmm. that's a real thrill for them. And it encourages them in their own personal Bible reading. To go, There's so still good. so much to learn. For all of us, there's still so much to learn. That's so good. All right, where, where can people find your work, Constantine? Uh, you got a website, right? I was I was just looking at. I do. Yeah. 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 ConstantineCampbell.info is my okay. website. Cool. Yeah. Or you can look me up on Amazon. I've got an author's page there. Okay. And you're active on social yeah. media as well. Yeah, I got a Twitter handle at Const Campbell. Okay. And uh, okay. on Facebook. Yeah. Cool. Well, I thank yeah. you so much for coming on the podcast. Encourage people to check out your work. I mean, I, again, for my listeners. Khan has, I mean, all the way from like high level academic stuff that I could hardly understand all the way to like super practical stuff. You, you've got some like, like introduction to Greek. Like if people want to actually learn mm-hmm. Greek, don't you have a couple textbooks that you've written or? Yeah. So the shameless plug here. <laughs> go for it's it. It's called Reading Biblical Greek. There you go. Um, and it's written for students. It's a textbook that is, breaks it down into little bite-sized chunks and uh, there's also uh, um, 83 video lectures that are available through Zondervan uh, with yours truly talking talking my way through this. Um, yeah, but my, my co-author, Richard Gibson, is he's really the master teacher okay. in this volume. Um, and so he's taught Greek for 20 years and just his pedagogical insights are all through that book. So you can start yeah. there if you want to take it up. Now, is that something that somebody has no knowledge of Greek? If they pick up that book and the video series, yeah. they can start with that. That's right. Yeah, you could teach yourself, and you'll be reading Mark's Gospel within a few weeks. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, I, again, I don't, I don't want to kick a dead horse, but, I mean, like, if somebody has, is not a pastor, not a leader, not whatever, like, would you still say, if you're a Christian and you have the time and maybe a little bit of money, it's never a bad thing to learn Greek? I don't want to put words in your it's mouth. but a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, and some people will get a real kick out of it and have a lot of fun with it. Well, I, I, and yeah. I, I'm terrible. Naturally, I'm terrible at learning, learning languages. So it was a chore for me to burn through Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and some, a little bit of Latin. But there is an enjoyment there. Like after a while, once you start getting it and, and you yeah. read a verse, you're like, oh, yeah. my gosh, I recognize these words. Yeah, like, yeah. There's a joy that happens there that's hard to there, predict. <laughs> there really is. And uh, I love seeing that with students when they get their br- break past this threshold and they feel yeah. like they're they're actually reading the – the New Testament in Greek, and it's like, wow, this is so exciting. Their yeah. brains are like exploding, you know. It's so cool. Thanks, Con, so much for the invigorating conversation. Many blessings to you down down under in your ministry there. And uh, yeah, thanks for giving us an hour of your time. Thanks, Preston. It's great to talk to you. Take care. Hey, friends, if you've been blessed, challenged, encouraged, or angered by this podcast, would you consider supporting it through Patreon? That's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. All the info is in the show notes. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to Q&A podcasts, um, monthly Patreon-only blogs, and basically just get access to the community and help support this uh, ministry that we're doing at Theology in the Raw. Again, check out the show notes and consider supporting this show. 